I'm Jason Altmeyer, and this is Career Education Report, where we discuss politics, business, and current events, generally impacting higher education and public policy. And this is an interesting episode because as we start 2022, a lot of people are thinking about congressional redistricting, the elections coming up the control of the Congress. And we have a guest today, David Wasserman, from the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter, who knows more about those subjects than anyone else in the country. And I think I'm not alone in, in, in saying that. He has, since 2006, been immersed in congressional redistricting, in campaigns and elections. The Cook Political Report is the gold standard for anyone who's interested in those topics. And we are just so grateful to have Dave Wasserman with us. And I would just say, um, as we start 2022, Dave, I think the question most people would uh, be thinking about, at least from the 30,000 foot level, is with regard to the midterm elections and control of Congress. And we've seen how difficult legislating has been in the current Congress, which is nearly equally divided. Uh, what would you say is the most likely outcome, understanding that the election is still uh, several months away, but looking at the midterm elections, how would you forecast who will be in control? Well, first of all, it's an honor to be on, and it's been fun to cover your races. Uh, when I was first starting in this job, covering the House for the Cook Political Report, it's it's rare to see uh, someone who has survived a, a you know, really big political wave, but you are you are one of those those people. What we're looking at in 2022 looks similar to 2010 in several ways. We have a first-term Democratic president whose approval rating is quite low. Now, Biden's is actually a bit lower than Barack Obama's was at this point in the 2010 cycle. We also have a redistricting cycle underway. And that's different from 2010, which was the, the cycle before redistricting. You know, that year, Republicans managed to pick up 63 House seats. And you know, district lines in the subsequent election locked in those gains. Of course, Republicans started out from a place that year where they needed to pick up 40 seats to win back control of the House, and they picked up 63. Today, Republicans only need to pick up five seats for House majority. They could get all five of those seats from redistricting gains alone. But the leading driver of why Republicans are the favorites for control next year is Biden's approval rating, which is a lot lower than it was in the summer. In history, the, the midterms elections almost always result in double-digit or greater losses for the incumbent party. So how much of what you expect in 2022 is just based on the historical trend that that's usually what always happens versus the underwater approval for the president, congressional unhappiness in what's happening in Congress, things like that? Well, the historical average is for a, a midterm election that the president's party, at least in the post-World War II era, has lost 26 seats. And, you know, that's probably the middle of our range of outcomes. We're keeping a wide outlook of possibilities next year because, after all, look, you know, most of us, based on the polls in 2020, thought that Democrats were going to pick up House seats. Instead, it was Republicans who picked up House seats. So we could still be in for a surprise. But, you know, I, I think based on not only history, but where Democrats stand in the polls right now and redistricting, you throw it all together and Republicans could net somewhere between 15 and 45 seats. 
How much of the outcome of the midterm elections do you think is going to be driven by policy? And by that, I mean, how much does the public pay attention to legislating and the outcomes of bills? And as you know, in Washington, there's so much written and said every day about what individual senators or House members are saying, you know, the, the horse race of legislation, is it going to pass? Is it not individual issues? But I, I don't think the public really pays that much attention to that. I think these races are driven more by the historical trend that we just talked about and the general unease with Congress. And I just, you, you do this every day. What, what do you think the, the importance of legislation is for the outcomes of campaigns on the national level? So I don't buy that there's a big segment of voters out there who are saying, well, you know, I was going to vote for Democrats, except they didn't pass Build Back Better or they didn't pass this or that piece of legislation I really wanted, so I'm going to go the other way, or vice versa. I don't think there are a lot of Republicans out there who are saying, well, you know, I'd vote for Democrats, you know, but they passed this, this bill that I don't like. Instead, midterm elections are about what kind of mood are voters in about the direction of the country under the current leadership. And we saw that, you know, in 2010, it worked against Obama. In 2018, it worked against Trump. Now it's working against Biden, at least from this vantage point. Elections these days tend to be more about fear of what the other side will do if they get into power. And so it's possible you know, Democrats could be successful in motivating their voters based on what the other side is up to later this year. However, presidents face a penalty because anger is a stronger motivator than love in politics. So that is a, that's kind of a built-in midterm advantage for the party out of power. They're the ones whose foot soldiers are riled up. You are the House expert for the Cook Political Report, and I want to drill down on a couple of states and ask your opinion on maybe some individual races that might be a surprise. What do you think about, obviously, California, the largest state, but they also have now an independent redistricting process. A lot of people are watching what's happening there. They've lost a seat for the first time in the, the population uh, decennial census, which, which occurs. So what, what do you think is going to happen in California with regard to their process? So California has a 14-member citizen commission that works collaboratively, and they, they are five Democrats, five Republicans, four unaffiliated. And you've got a prohibition on using partisan and incumbent data, which is unique from, from other states. And, you know, California's probably done as good a job as, as, as possible of removing partisan considerations from the process, but that doesn't mean it's fully insulated from it. You know, in, in the product that the California uh, Commission came up with, you could tell as the iterations of drafts went on, they tended to get a bit friendlier to incumbents of, of both parties. And that's the result of sustained campaigns from incumbents to call into the commission and have their supporters say, well, you know, we want X, Y, and Z towns to be linked together because we believe they're a community of interest. So I don't believe it's entirely possible to remove politics from redistricting unless you were to have an algorithm or, or a computer program draw maps. But more states would probably be better served to adopt a style or a process similar to California's. What number of states have independent redistricting commissions that are truly nonpartisan and then what's the breakdown of the other states for the Democrats and the Republicans controlling the process? Well, I don't think there are any states where commissions are truly nonpartisan. 
In many cases, they're bipartisan, but they have a tie-breaking member or they have an unaffiliated contingent. And I actually think that's necessary to make the process work. There are three states that adopted commissions for the first time for congressional lines this cycle, Colorado, Michigan, and Virginia. What we saw in Virginia was the commission deadlocked because it was eight Democrats and eight Republicans, and there was no incentive to deal. There was no grease, uh, you know, no tiebreaker. Whereas in California and, and Colorado and Michigan, you have very citizen-driven processes. And then in states like New Jersey, Arizona, Washington, you have commissions where legislative leaders have, have selected partisans uh, and they deal back and forth and in some cases end up protecting incumbents. So it, 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 not all commissions are created equal. But a big reason why Republicans have an advantage in drawing seats this time around, 187 seats are under Republican control of maps and only 75 are under Democratic control, is that a lot of blue states have embraced redistricting reform more than red states. And so you've got some of these big blue states, California, Washington, New Jersey, Colorado, Virginia, that have passed redistricting commissions and as a result are seeing fairly neutral maps. Now, California's uh, commission map actually looks pretty good for the Democrats. But you could end up with you know, a situation where these neutral maps prevent Democrats from gerrymandering up to 10 to 15 more seats for their own advantage. Whereas Republicans in places like Texas and Ohio and North Carolina and Florida, they can gerrymander to their heart's content. Now, the main constraint we're seeing in Republican states is courts and just how much can Republicans get away with. And Ohio and North Carolina have state Supreme Courts with anti-gerrymandering majorities. And we'll see whether those maps survive court scrutiny. That's really the big question that's going to determine how many seats each party is up or down at the end of this process. Give us an example, absent a, a court overturning a map in a state like Florida or Texas that you've talked about, what is the current partisan breakdown of the congressional delegation versus what could it look like in a new map for 2022? Yeah, so in Texas, the current breakdown is 23 Republicans and 13 Democrats. But out of those 23 Republicans, it's interesting, nine of those seats, Joe Biden won 47% of the vote or more. And what happened is in the past decade, we've seen Texas's suburbs become a whole lot bluer, more purple at least, and that has caused a lot of stress on uh, Republican prospects in those districts, even though they still hold them. So Republicans' gambit this time around was instead of splitting Austin in six different directions, rather than cracking, they decided to pack Austin into one new Democratic district. The end result was it made all of those surrounding Republican seats a whole lot redder. And now on the new map, it's likely to be 25 Republicans and 13 Democrats, with the upshot that those 25 Republicans are likely to be a lot safer for at least the next couple of years until this demographic change begins to threaten them again, perhaps by 2030. So we're going to see a lawsuit in Texas uh, over the map unfold in federal court. Republicans are trying to convert one of the districts in the Rio Grande Valley from blue to red, and they did so by swapping out more Democratic-leaning Hispanic precincts in exchange for more moderate Hispanic, or at least more competitive Hispanic precincts. 
And Democrats may have to convince, they may have work to do to convince courts that Hispanic voters in South Texas are still a cohesive voting bloc at a time when former President Trump made great strides with that demographic. What about a state like Pennsylvania? It's perceived to be a, at minimum, purple, maybe trending blue state, with the exception of President Trump won it very close in 2016. What does the congressional map look like? They lost a seat. What's the delegation going to look like in 2022? Yeah, so uh, you know something about this, uh, but it's 9-9. And, you know, one fascinating fact is Democrats would not be in the House majority today if it weren't for lawsuits that overturned Republican gerrymanders in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida, and Virginia in the last decade. Pennsylvania was Democrats' biggest But, you know, in 2018, Democrats were able to leverage their majority on the state Supreme Court to overturn the uh, Republican-drawn map, which was 13 Republicans and five Democrats. Under the new lines and with the 2018 wave, it became 9-9. But uh, now Pennsylvania is losing a seat. And there is likely to be a stalemate because you've got a Republican legislature in Harrisburg and a Democratic governor. I had one consultant on the Democratic side liken the political climate in Harrisburg to Fallujah and said, you know, look, there's no chance that the parties are going to come to agreement here. So I think the state Supreme Court is going to end up appointing another special master to draw another congressional map. Question is, which party ends up with the the short straw here? Because there are 17 seats for for 18 members and a 9-9 split. So I think one of the the seats in the middle of the state, presumably a deeply Republican district, is going to get the axe with the caveat that a number of Democratic seats that are very marginally blue will need to expand in population towards the middle of the state. So you could see Democrats like Matt Cartwright or Susan Wild or Connor Lamb's open seat. They could all get less Democratic, and as a result, Republicans could make considerable gains in, in the midterm. What do you read into the retirements that have occurred? It's not unusual, especially after redistricting, to have a wave of incumbents announcing they're not going to seek re-election. Is there a trend that you have seen that might impact the results of the elections that we'll face this year? So a big difference between this year and 2010 was that in 2010, it wasn't apparent that Democrats were going to lose their majority until a couple months out from the election. Whereas this time around, Democrats, you know, I don't think we've ever seen a majority party be such underdogs to hold their majority in a midterm. It's just such a tenuous advantage that Democrats hold in the House. And so I think the majority party understands this is a very short window to pass legislation and to be powerful in committee chair roles or subcommittees. And there's not going to be that much done in 23 or 24. So I could see Democratic retirements going into the high 30s or even low 40s, considering that many filing deadlines still haven't passed. You are famous for popularizing the term, I've seen enough. And what that means is on election night, everyone follows you on Twitter and social media and on TV, you're with NBC too. And when you say you've seen enough that the race is called, at what point in this election cycle will you have seen enough to make an informed guess on exactly how many seats are going to swing? 
Look, I, I tend to save that for election night. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's our role to predetermine what the outcomes are going to be, although we, we do our best to, to issue a forecast. And polls can be wrong. We saw that you know, in, in 2016, in 2020, you know, last cycle, even Republican pollsters, even the House Republicans campaign committee thought that they were going to lose seats in the House. So I like to wait until we see hard data. And we have a good set of election results from 2021 in Virginia and New Jersey that suggest Republicans are doing really, really well down ballot, that their side's turnout is just stratospheric, that whatever challenge they had in demonizing Joe Biden in 2020, now they've they've really been able to motivate their base and the intensity of that opposition to Biden is much higher. And so, you know, the question really becomes how much are Democrats able to match that? And we we won't know that until November. You are a House of Representatives expert. That's your responsibility with the Koch report with Amy Walter, but I do want to ask you just generally with regard to the Senate, does the Senate have as much opportunity to flip to the Republicans, or is it really just a toss-up? Look, if the Senate election were held this week or next week, I think Republicans would sweep the competitive battlefield. Keep in mind that Republicans captured Virginia's governorship by two points in a state Biden carried by 10. They came within three points of beating Phil Murphy in New Jersey in a state Biden won by 16. But, you know, fortunately for, for Republicans, they don't need to win Biden plus 10 or Biden plus 13 states to win control of the Senate. We're talking about Pennsylvania, which was pretty much, you know, Biden by one. We're talking about North Carolina, which was a narrow Trump state. Wisconsin, again, Biden by less than one. Arizona and Georgia, Biden by less than one. So, you know, you've got a bunch of Senate seats that are, you know, 10 points to the right of Virginia. And, uh, you know, at the time, I just don't see how Democrats hang on to those seats unless they are able to disqualify the Republican nominee. And it's possible that Republicans will end up being their own worst enemies. We'll see how Dr. Oz plays out in Pennsylvania. But Democrats have potentially more appealing or at least candidates with less liabilities than, than Republicans do in a number of these places. And to what extent will Donald Trump insert himself in Republican primaries on behalf of candidates who are personally loyal to him, but don't necessarily have the broadest general election appeal. Senate races are different from the House because they tend to place more of a premium on candidate quality. And that's, that's the test that Republicans will have to pass. Last question, I think would be on everybody's mind who's listening. The casual observer would think that if the Republicans win in a landslide, in the midterm elections in 2022, that that automatically means that the president is vulnerable in 2024. But if you look at what happened the last two times, there were wave elections in the first term of a president that was running for re-election. Bill Clinton in 1994 and Barack Obama in 2010. Both of those landslide midterm elections would have led anyone to believe that, wow, that's a really bad sign for, for the next presidential election, for the reelect of the incumbent. But that's, of course, not what happened. That in fact, both of those presidents won by sizable margins. So what would the tea leaves say about 2024 if the Republicans win, as, as I think we expect, 
in the House and perhaps in the Senate. What does that mean for the 2024 presidential election? I think Republicans taking control of Congress is better for Joe Biden's prospects than Democrats keeping control of Congress based on history. That's true. But then you throw in that Joe Biden's victory in 2020 was a really narrow victory at a time when Republicans, you know, based on President Trump's approval rating, should have lost by a lot more. And, you know, in 1996 and in 2012, both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama had pretty big coalitions that they could reassemble. You know, both won by really big margins the first time around in the Electoral College. And so, you know, even though they had a dip, at least that coalition existed in the first place to reactivate. Whereas in, in Joe Biden's case, yes, he won 7 million more votes than Donald Trump. Yes, he won the Electoral College 306 to 232. But when you add up his cumulative margins in the states that put him over the top in the Electoral College, Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin, it was 42,915 votes against a president who is widely perceived to have mishandled a pandemic. And so now, you know, the shoe's on the other foot and it's President Biden who's responsible for shepherding the country at a time when voters are frustrated with the cost of goods and frustrated that we haven't yet moved on from COVID. There's time for, for that to change, certainly, before 2024. But he doesn't start out with much room for error. That was David Wasserman, senior editor, House of Representatives for the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter. David, thank you very much for being with us. And uh, we'll look forward to following what you have to say throughout the year. It was a pleasure. Thanks a lot. And, uh, and it's great to be back with you. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Career Education Report. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, you can visit our website at career.org and follow us on Twitter at CQED.